Hey, what up, what up? How's it going? So this will be episode six, I believe, of Mullins and Chow. Eat it uh, Are you awake? How are you feeling? I'm awake. Um, I'm glad you asked, because actually I did go out last night, um, and it's the perfect segue into today's episode. Um, I totally forgot that I had tickets to see Patton Oswalt and Friends. And for those who don't live in the L.A. area, or I'm sure it's similar in New York, um, a lot of times comedians here will have that comedian and friends. And it'll be like a two-hour show. And basically they have a bunch of other comedians come out. Now here in L.A., since so many comedians live here, the quality of the comedians that come out are generally national comedians. So... In fact, there was a guy who was kind of the host, and he wasn't all that funny, but I think he was a personal friend of Pat Oswalt. However, guess who the second person to come up as a comedian during Pat Oswalt and Friend last night, um, Chabe? I literally could not guess. You actually could if you, if I give you this hint. We talked about them on the last podcast. Uh, who did we talk about? I'll give you a. I'll give you a second. Hey, I need another hit. He has a hit movie out right now that he directed and wrote. Oh, Bo Burnham. Bo Burnham. Nice. <laughs> Bo. So Burnham. How was that? It. Oh man, that was that was just the second one. Now, so basically, before we go into the rest of the show, I do want to highlight that this episode is going to be about stand-up comedy, um, and the state of satire. Now. One of the most interesting things about Bo Burnham when he came up was that he was talking about how in the past people always went to the fool or the stand-up comedian to get the news from your normal person. And he says something, he said something in the show along the lines of, it's not like we have a shortage of getting news from the public anymore, do we? And I thought it was really poignant, and we can definitely discuss that as a topic. In terms of Bo Burnham's performance, he did about a 10 to 15 minute set. It was pretty good. You know, his usual shtick of doing uh, music uh, alongside his comedy. And it also has kind of a introspective or kind of metaphysical kick to it. It was pretty good. He goes off. Next person to come up is uh, the big sick himself, Kumail Nanjiani. Who kills it, dude? I've never seen him do oh, stuff yeah. that good. He was. Oh, he's great. He's great. He was. He was. It was really, really good. And apparently, he's taken about six months off from stand-up comedy, and so this was his first show in six months. And he does an amazing job. It was just. It was really good. And then Pat Oswalt comes in to finish it. And about halfway through Pat Oswalt's set, both me and Alex are sitting there in pain from laughing so much like our jaws are sore from laughing so much it's about 40 dollars ticket it was i mean which is two movie tickets here in in los angeles i mean i highly recommend uh he does a monthly at the largo uh at or it's largo at the coronet over at beverly hills uh if you're ever here child bay and then any listeners who might be in the la area I definitely recommend you go. Best forty dollars you'll spend. Absolutely, I can definitely, uh, I can definitely co-sign that. A lot of people don't like. Everybody loves stand-up comedy, but a lot of people don't think to 
to Google and see who's going to be in their town and see what they can go, like maybe they can go check out a show. It's always worth the money. It seriously is. You get way more than you pay for. I would suggest people definitely start checking it out. So in terms of that Bo Burnham comment, getting back to more of the substance behind it, what do you think about that? Um, That comedy is in a interesting state of flux due to basically what he was referring to referring to social media do you think that's true do you think that the comic doesn't have the same place in society that it has for most of human history absolutely because i think the roles of comic and journalist are always kind of close together they've always been intrinsically tied even though they seem to be at opposite ends of the spectrum but I mean, a comic, uh, the, the key elements to a joke is there has to be a, a fundamental truth or maybe something that you're not thinking about that gets exposed in a clever way. It basically is like a, it's like a mind trick. It, a joke is like a Jedi mind trick when it's really good. It just takes you by surprise and gives you an involuntary reaction. And so what's happening with social media is uh, jokes are being heavily scrutinized people are trying to define what's acceptable and what's not what's funny and what's not when a lot of times that can be subjective and a lot of other times it's just people trying to police speech and i don't think it's helping comedy at all yeah i mean it's definitely true but at the same time and again this was a master class of comments right like bo burnham is is super is very much up and coming Kumail Nanjiani, I would definitely say he's a polished top tier comic now, hands down. Like oh, yeah. he gave uh, Pat Oswalt a run for his money, um, and then obviously Pat Oswalt. And um, I thought they all did a really good job of playing off of the current environment. In particular, Bo Burnham had a song um, about giving consent, which was which was really good um, and hilarious. <laughs> it was done in R. Kelly style which made it even better. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, that's good. Uh, I'm glad to see people are still still taking risks. Absolutely. So, I I mean, I think it's still there, but I agree with you that um, in the past, um, you know, as George Carlin, and I do want to talk a a little bit about him today, you know, he used to say, being a comic is ain't I smart, ain't I cute, ain't I clever. And we definitely live in an age now with social media where, I mean, we're doing it ourselves right now with the podcast uh, where everybody has a platform all the time and the comics aren't necessarily put on, you know, it's just like in music. It, it used to be that you couldn't really get heard unless you got a record deal or else you had a relationship with the radio station. And now you can just upload your stuff anywhere. Um, I think in my opinion, when it comes to music, um, and comedy, because I see them kind of intertwined in this uh, auditory or performance art. Um, I do think on one hand that maybe the comic, the single comic is not as impactful, but at the same time, I think it's made it that a lot of people who might not have gotten heard in the past are being able to get heard. And also too, it's making it so you have to be a lot better um, in order to compete. So I'm not sure that I think that it's necessarily a bad thing. I just think that it does make the comic the comic's job a lot harder, for sure. 
Yeah, I can see that. So, um, anything else in terms of, I know that you had some comedy-related news that you wanted to bring up. Did I? (laughs) (laughs) I have, I I would say that my, um, my leader of the free world and my evil genius is all going to be comedy and or social media related to some extent. Okay. Well, I think I have comic news right now. Okay. Well then, then I want to cut back to something we kind of talked about before and it's an easy way to flush out um, where we're at in the state of comedy who would you say are the top three of all time for you? And then who are you say, would you say are the top three for right now are for you? That's a good one. So top three of right now are going to be, I would say, and this is in no particular order, I would say it's Tom Segura, Kumail Nanjiani, and... Um, Probably Bo Burnham. Why? Because I think they're all cutting edge in different ways. I like that Kumail was able to um, to make a serious movie about something that happened in his life, but still make it funny. Keep it light, but tell a really serious story. And he's always had a really fresh perspective. I've always been a fan of his stand-up. He has uh, a special from a few years ago called Beta Male, and I'd say he was pretty on top of it back then as well so if you're saying he's gotten better I can definitely see that I like uh, Tom Segura because he he pushes boundaries too in a different way he's like the kind of grizzly offensive dude (laughs) and you always need people like that in comedy that kind of keep things a little bit trashy and he got some uh, he got some heat for his last special Disgraceful which is on Netflix for (laughs) for making fun of Cajuns, for saying that we should build a wall around Louisiana to keep Cajuns out of the rest of the country. And he got people petitioning him for that. So it's just... Really? Yeah. It's, and it's hilarious to think that things like that are happening. He's like, look, here's a joke that you possibly can't take offense to or think that I'm serious about. And people still really took offense to it. And then Bo Burnham, because I think he's... I think we've yet to see what he's really capable of, but he's super impressive. One of my favorite Bo Burnham moments was when he was on the green room with Paul Provenza a few years ago. And he was there with a bunch of old school comics like Ray Romano, um, uh, Gary Shandling, like a bunch of people that are just going to sit there and rag on each other. And Bo was like maybe 20 years old at the time, super young, but he was able to just, like give jabs back and forth with these people. I think Mark Marin was there too. And he it, it was kind of eye opening to see that. He was like, you know what, I'm here, I respect you guys, I understand your status, but I deserve to be at this table. Hmm. You know, so going back to your first one, uh Kamel Nandiani, I think one of the things that was so poignant to me, especially about last night's performance, is that this is a guy who grew up in Pakistan, but in some ways has cracked the code of what it is to be a Westerner. And the way that he communicates, I feel like he is more fluent in, I would say, um, 
United States youth culture than half the people in America are. And that was one of the most impressive things about him. Is I mean, this dude is is basically a master linguist, um, and he does it so effortlessly. Uh, effortlessly, um, I have the even props for that. And the fact is that he's only he's only kind of started his career in what the last five years, so he's still got a good ten years of like continuing to improve. Uh, he's he's definitely a rising star, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think once Silicon Valley is over with, he'll, he'll move on to something bigger and better. He'll probably be at the helm of a project. Before I get into my three, speaking of Silicon Valley, what's going on with TJ Miller? I haven't heard anything about him in a while. Dude, he got uh, he got me too, and then he got well. He left uh, he left Silicon Valley on his own, and then he he got me too for some uh, for something that happened back in his past. Apparently, he was very violent within. Uh, with an ex-girlfriend from college and he refuted the claims and just he uh he was already kind of becoming a pariah pretty rapidly because of just his actions in general and then he called a uh bomb threat on a train i i don't remember exactly where it was but he got into an argument with some woman some civilian and then he called in and he called the police and said that this woman had a bomb and of course they arrested him and that's the last i've heard of him that was a few months ago. Hmm. So not well. <laughs> so going into my top three right now, I think number one is still going to be Dave Chappelle right now. Because the thing is, is about Dave Chappelle is that when he speaks, everybody stops and listens. I mean, and he doesn't even speak loudly. Like he speaks very s- slow and softly but it's that powerful that people know whatever he's going to say is either going to be hilarious or impactful and insightful. And I can't remember really the last time I feel like I've seen somebody who, when they speak, just shuts up any room that they're in. So I still would have him yeah. at the at the top. Um, next. So I was really liking where Michelle Wolf was going. Um. However, I am going to take her off the list and I'm going to put Eliza Schlesinger on the list after seeing her last special. I thought she's still, well, I guess she's she's not, and none of us are getting any younger, but she is around our age. I still think she has a good five to ten years um, left to like grow her act. And what I saw on her last, last stand-up was probably one of the better stand-ups I've seen in the last three or four years. Um, and I think it, it, um, it shows her growing as opposed to Michelle Wolf, who in some ways, I, I, I really love Michelle Wolf's uh, stand-up on HBO. Um, and I loved her White House Correspondence Dinner. But doing something like The Break, I feel like she's running out of jokes. Well, how many jokes can you possibly make about the same thing everybody else is talking about? Well, the thing is, though, is that you look at people like um, uh, Stephen Colbert and uh, Jon Stewart and um, 
just trying to think of some other folks who have a daily type show like or a weekly show like that actually yeah because they had daily shows her show's only weekly and it felt like they had more better material uh more regular mar for example you know what i'm saying where it's like i don't know if it's because wolf is the only one on her writing team but the jokes are really they're really not good (laughs) unfortunately like the first couple of episodes when she came out i thought that the monologues were pretty good but even now i can't even the monologues aren't good anymore i don't know if you've watched the birth girl i haven't because i never thought she was that funny to be honest except for the white house correspondence dinner that was hilarious so eliza schlesinger um just i thought she did a great job and then number three i'm gonna have to split because it's it's one artist that's on the rise but it's just been kind of gone for a while and then one that's kind of going into legend status and he's more just bringing people up so the legend status um as you probably guessed is Patton Oswald, and that was a big part of the reason I went to the show is because I feel like Patton Oswald is basically now the Jerry Seinfeld of LA where like he, he runs this town's comedy scene like everybody knows who he is. He's everywhere. He does all the award shows. Even when I was at the show last night, a guy who had this award show called the Carney, um, which is for character actors, you know, uh, when Pat Oswalt was doing crowd work, he called on this guy and was talking to him about what he does. And he's like, oh, and he's like, you know, what kind of character actors have won your awards? He's like, well, this is our fourth year. And these are the character actors. He's like, I love those guys. I love those guys. And he's like, who's going to host your next one? He's like, well, actually, we sent you an offer like a week ago. <laughs> he's like, oh, well, I guess I'll have to talk to my people because I'm interested. <laughs> so he's really, like, involved in the L.A. community. Um, and while I feel like he's gotten to a point where he realizes that he doesn't have to tell, he doesn't have to write jokes as much anymore, kind of in a Dave Chappelle way, um, I wouldn't necessarily say he's as good as Chappelle, but he's still extremely solid. The dude can talk about almost anything and make it funny. On the other side, in terms of rising stars, he hasn't been around for a while, and I don't know what's going on with this, but Gerard Carmichael, when he does decide to come back, um, right now, uh, he's a contender, right? And as long as he comes pretty, you know, as long as he comes with another strong special with the next one he does, I think he's going to be top tier for sure, especially since he's so young. So he's got a lot of a room to grow, you know? Yeah, he's got that presence too. He's got, I mean, obviously Chappelle is a legend, but Gerard Carmichael has that soft-spoken, like powerful presence as well, where he just draws you in. There'll be long pauses between punchlines. And it's just everything he does is timed so perfectly. It's almost, it comes across as like stream of consciousness. It's like he gives the jokes chances, a chance to breathe. Yeah. Which I think, and that's what I love about Bo Burnham. And uh, when it comes to him as a director, because he directed Gerard Carmichael's last special eight, which was hilarious. And he knows how to capture that and it's and magnify those moments where there's just, space in between where it would be dead air in a regular special where you just have a regular multicam and you have the, the the crowd pan where you show the comic walking on the stage when he gets a big laugh and stuff like that. He doesn't do that. It's a more intimate setting and it'll zoom in really tight on his face and you can just see his expression. So you never get bored with it. It's a really it's really interesting how these guys are changing comedy. And 
do. So what about top three all time? Oh, that is so hard to say. Like, yeah, I, I mean, put Pat Oswald. I gotta put Pat Oswald up there. He's one of my favorites. Of, the, of all time, just said of, of all, all time? time, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and I because I don't get the. Uh, I think comedy changes a lot, so I don't. I, I'm not a fan of nostalgia. For the longest time, I was saying nobody's better than Eddie Murphy. He was like my Richard Pryor. It's like the the first real special you saw as a kid, and you're like, this is unbelievably funny, and it still holds up. I've always thought Eddie Murphy with just those two specials was untouchable, but I'd say just personal preference. I like Chris Rock. He's one of my favorite comedians ever. I think Chris Rock is brilliant. And if I had to say another comic, another favorite of all time, it's really hard. It's for now, just say I really like Bill Burr because I can't possibly say favorite comic of all time. It's too hard for me. I would say, I think number one, and I came to him super late, um, referenced it before, but I really think George Carlin's got to be, I think he's got to be number one for me, which is crazy because I did grow up on, you know, on my dad's comedy. It's just like, I feel like comedy is kind of like religion, right? In that Mm -hmm. um, you kind of inherit your, who you follow comedically or, or your comedic roots from your parents just like your parents drag you to whatever church or whatever service they go to all the time. The first comics you're going to hear are the ones that your parents are listening to. And so for me, um, you know, I grew up listening to Richard Pryor, probably number one, Franklin Ajayi was another big one in our house, Eddie Murphy, less so. Um, But those flip Wilson. um, But yeah, those were the main ones, maybe a little bit of red Fox. And so I didn't really know anything about Carlin because, again, I grew up in a black and somewhat religious household. He's neither one of those things. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> um, but as an adult, I've gotten to listen to him and uh, just how quickly he could think and deconstruct really complex issues um, and do it so nonchalantly. And I mean, Part of it was he had 50 years of experience. But I think what's crazy is, is that he kept his energy level so high, so late in life. Um, and just his longevity and his pro, his prolific nature, he's he's got to be number one for me. Um, man, you brought up uh, Chris Rock, and I think, oh, that's a pretty good one. Um, just in terms of his writing, and I feel like in a lot of ways – this guy is like a high school dropout, right? So he is somebody who uh, who could have gone the route of like, oh, I'm so hard, I'm from the streets, kind of like um, Charlie Murphy over uh, uh, in Tracy Morgan or something like that, or even to a certain extent what Richard Pryor did. You know, Richard Pryor in some ways tried to be a little bit hard, you know? And I feel like Chris Rock never did that, and he still made it work for him which is amazing. Uh, Do I put him on the list? I think I'm going to put him on the list, and I think I'm going to put him on the list. Uh, Let me think. Just one second, because I'm trying to decide between him and Chappelle. 
And the thing is about Chappelle is I think he's still like the most relevant comedian right now. But when I look over his entire body of work, it's really good. Like technically, technically Chappelle is on point. But when it comes to talking about 360 degree issues of like being a man and fatherhood um, and things like this. I never felt, I never f- have felt like Chappelle has been able to be 100% um, intimate or vulnerable. Vulnerable is the term I was looking for with the audience to where I feel like he's actually like he's actually being real with me. And obviously none of these comedians are going to be a hundred percent real. No, I, this is show business. As they say in uh, Jerry Maguire, it's not show friends, it's show business. But I think that one thing that Chris Rock has had over um, Dave Chappelle is Chris Rock is, he's a very authentic guy, you know, and you feel like you can learn from him because of his authenticity. That's exactly why he's, He's so high on my list, if not my favorite of all time, because I feel like I always learn something from watching a Chris Rock special. And then kind of like the Jay Z of comedy. Yes, I, I I definitely think that Chris Rock and Jay Z in some ways are um, are kindred spirits. Mm-hmm. Cameron was his four forty four. And where I where I look at Dave Chappelle and I think of Dave Chappelle as like a I'm trying to think. I look at him as just maybe like a Kendrick, I guess. Where he's just so incredibly talented, but I don't feel like I know who the real Kendrick is. You know? Yeah. Um Kendrick could wrap circles around Jay Z. Um and just do things that Jay Z could just wishes he could do. But I feel like I know who Jay-Z is and I feel like he, he's helped me become a better person. Yeah, straight up. Um, and just speaking real quick before I forget, I totally forgot to put John Leguizamo in my top of all time because I think he is one of the most underrated comics ever. He uh, He's one of those people that, that doesn't really even do just regular stand-up comedy. He's more of a showman where he, he performs a one-man show. It has sound effects. It has lighting effects. He is engaged with the crowd in a different way. He changes outfits. He changes voices. He moves around the stage, and he tells you a painful life story after painful life story, successes, failures. He takes you on a ride with him and keeps you laughing the whole time, and it's He's, like, so tragically underrated to me. If you haven't seen, like, Ghetto Clown or any of his other specials, you definitely should check him out. Oh, I've I've seen him. I, I do think he's underrated, but I also think there's a reason for that. I don't think that he's done anything that's made him legendary. I think he's done a lot of things to make him be part of the club of classic comedians. But I don't know if he – I don't think I've ever seen him do anything that I thought was legendary. But he definitely is like – I would say he's kind of like an industry legend in that in some ways I would rather have John Leguizamo as an actor in my film than I would necessarily like to go – sorry, this is L.A. We have choppers all the time. Um, 
them to go to his stand-up. Like, if I was casting okay. a film, I would definitely throw John Leguizamo in there because I think he's going to bring something really special to the role. You know? Um, so, for the last one, I'm just looking at stuff. Freddie Prince, man, if that dude had not passed away, he probably would have been a top comedian. Um, we'll have to return to D.L. Hughley because I was really, wow, that last episode of, of Mars. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I knew that was coming too because I've been watching him recently. He's been popping up in my in my feeds and it hasn't been going well. So I, I wasn't surprised by that. Um I think I'm gonna go with John Stewart. I think I'm gonna go with John Stewart. And and again, Stand this up. is I think John Stewart can do it all. I think he can do it all. And I would say that he can't get like the full on deep, deep laughs of maybe some of the other comedians that we've mentioned, but his body of work, dude. I mean, who, who's got more? I mean, I would say if it Seinfeld made more money, but in terms of their impacts on the culture and everything that they've done, I would have to say Jon Stewart has got a much more impressive body of work. On legendary status, yeah, and that could bring us into our next topic pretty smoothly. If we're going to talk about the state of satire and the role of satire, how how does that play into our uh, political landscape now? Do they have some type of an obligation to society since everyone wants to be a comedic journalist? You have a ton of John Stewart impersonators out there right now. So before we like go into the heart the heart of the matter i do want to talk about this last episode of mar because i think you know mar is kind of taking the mantle by default of um where what john stewart and and stephen colbert were doing and you know mar has been doing it just as long as them is not longer but i think it's just because there's been a an absence of somebody who has an American perspective talking about American cultural events. I mean, especially since um, the daily show is now held by Trevor Noah. And then you had um, this was last week tonight with uh, why can't I think of his John name? Oliver. Right now? John Oliver, uh, Samantha B. I mean, I guess she could count, but she's Canadian. Oh, she's Canadian. So she's not from the U S either. <laughs> So, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's just like, the, and then outside of that, you've got the, um, what are they, the, uh, like, nightly news or the late night talk show hosts, which never talk about anything substantive the way that a Comedy Central or HBO is going to. So all we've really got left now is Mar. I mean, just yeah. he just outlasted everybody. <laughs> and so, you know, both me and you love to watch Mar talk about him a lot uh Dio Hughley was on last night and Dio Hugh or uh this last episode and Dio Hughley's been interesting where there's a couple of comedians who have like tried to go from being a comedian to being a journalist and I would say at the forefront of them has been Dio Hughley um and it's interesting to me who decides to do what right like in some ways I thought Dio Hughley was a better comedian than Steve Harvey Actually, not in some ways, just in general. I thought he was a better comedian I would than agree Steve with Harvey. That. Um, I would agree with that. 
But what I will give Steve Harvey is he chose his lanes extremely well. So it went into morning radio, mainly playing in, in the South. And I think it plays out here in LA too. Um, he went into Family Feud. He went into, um, I think is the show called Are You Smarter Than a Five-Year-Old? I think is what it's called, right? Probably. Um, and these things are perfect for him because he's not out of his element at all. He doesn't really have to talk about anything substantive. D.L. Hughley decided that he was going to go be a CNN news correspondent. <laughs> and which takes, you know, a very high level of uh, background information and uh, kind of, you know, journalistic discipline. You went to school for it. You know exactly what I'm, what I'm talking about when I say that. Uh-huh. Um, and so when he was on Mar this last week, um, they had a guy named Steve Pink, Pink, Pinkman. I'm trying to remember. It's like Pinky, Pinkney, yeah, uh, Pinkerton. Awesome hair. Yeah, but he does have awesome hair. But he's a psychology professor at um, Harvard. I believe he was educated at Stanford. Um, and this guy is one of these um, eternally optimist guys. Uh, there's kind of this movement of academic optimism where everyone is being so critical of the current reality. And these guys are saying, yeah, there are things that can improve, but if we look throughout the whole of human history, things have improved dramatically. And they kind of focus on those things. And D.L. Hughley, because the prior guest uh, was talking about police brutality and D.L. Hughley recently wrote a book on police brutality, he tried to chime in on this topic of throughout the whole of human history, things getting better with a very, very well-educated guy with saying that, well, it's not good because police brutality still exists. And I'm not going to lie, it was kind of embarrassing. I don't know. It just was like, he was really out of his depth. And instead of listening to what the guy had to say and commenting on that, he tried to create I would say half create an argument and maybe you could describe it better after, you know, I, I introduced the concept. Um, but I just didn't feel like it just didn't feel like he knew how to express himself, which if you're going to be a comedy for your entire or a comic, your entire life, and then you're going to go work at CNN. I feel like you need to be a little bit better about disseminating or like, um, basically taking in information, synthesizing it, and then responding. And I was really, I was kind of shocked, one, that he opened his mouth, and when he did what he said, um, because I just didn't feel like it benefited anybody. And again, maybe it's just for him, it's a situation where it was a wake-up call for him to know where his lane kind of was, what he's really good at speaking on, and things that he has some serious blind spots that maybe he shouldn't go into so much, at least not in the public forum quite yet. You know, mm-hmm. I think everybody needs to, to do that. I was glad that guy was there because I don't think anybody else on the panel, maybe Bill Maher would have tried to pump the brakes a little bit. But, I mean, the, you have – this is just running rampant because everybody wants to be a journalist now. Everybody wants to be involved 
in the uh, political debate going on. But people get uh, defensive like DL did, where they're like, this is my truth, this is what I know because I feel this way. And this guy's, well, no, I know a lot about this. I've been studying it for 30 years. And it's like, well, you can't tell me that what I feel isn't valid. You have that fight or flight response, and it got triggered with DL, and he decided to fight, and it did not go well. Where I feel like some people really need to uh, to learn that if you're going to be a part of the conversation, you have to do your research. And that's hard. People don't want to do that. People want to be outraged. Outrage sells. It's entertaining. So that's how I feel about that. Yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree. And it was, it just, to me, it was actually kind of sad because this is a guy who, for a long time, has been really quick on his feet and he had done okay on CNN. Again, I feel like he was deployed in a way that it was usually suited to his strengths. Um, and it was just unfortunate because, you know, it's kind of one of those one all shit erases 10 attaboys. Um, and we all go through it, and it would just sucked because this is a guy who, um, who had made, made has made quite a name for himself, and it just made him look. He lost a lot of credibility, unfortunately, in my eyes, personally, I guess. Yeah, I'd uh, say he's already been losing that credibility with me just because I've been watching him on YouTube and things like that. I think when you get stuck in these echo chambers, man, when you collect facts that you just already agree with that support your narrative, when, whenever you debate someone who's an actual expert, you're going to look foolish. And unfortunately, that doesn't happen enough. That's a really good point. And I would say that, you know, that's the thing about academia. And that's why these guys are are somewhat respected or, you know, should command some respect is that they put themselves every day in the position to be wrong. Um, you know, a lot of times they're working with empirical data. And so they're often seeking people who have very different opinions and um, making sure that they're testing their, their thesis or their hypothesis. Um, and yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you just live in LA and you're just talking to the same people in LA who have the exact same background as you, or if you live in like, I don't, you know, rural Alabama and you're just talking to people who have the same background as you, you're never going to get really tested on any of the premises that you're, you're coming up with. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, it was like bringing a knife to a gunfight. Definitely. Seriously. Um, another question, another question I've had for you, um, cause I've had, I've heard a couple of, and this is a little bit of change. We'll get back to the satire. We will, I promise. But I just wanted to ask you real quick while we're still on personalities. I've heard a lot of comedians say how Lenny Bruce is like a huge influence for them and then i've heard some comedians say yeah he's legendary like they sidestepped it they're like oh yeah he's legendary but these other people are big for me why is it that most comedians feel like they have to refer back to lenny bruce huh that's an interesting question because i've heard lenny bruce's name and i've never heard i don't even know what he looks like or sounds like i've never seen any of his comedy so i couldn't tell you about him specifically but i know that they like to uh to kiss the ring it's like something that i'm not afraid to do uh is just say what i really like i feel like people throughout cultures people it's like people saying that their favorite rapper is pop it's like shut up 
not. <laughs> and, like, there's been better shit. There's better stuff out right now. <laughs> like, people, but people are afraid that people are going to make fun of them if they say what they really like. So they have to throw in, like, something that's considered unquestionable in culture. So they go back to Lenny Bruce. And a lot of people do that with Jerry Seinfeld now. Where they're like, he's just such a legendary comic. He's a savant. I'm like, dude, he makes jokes about peanuts. Like, I like him, but he's not cutting edge. Like, it's just people. Uh, people are afraid to to be seen as someone who is less cultured, or and you could trace that back to any aspect of politics. People do it there. People do it with movies. They're like, what's your favorite movie? The Godfather? Oh, is it? Nothing bad has come out. Nothing you like more. I just don't buy it. So as, as it relates to your question, I think that's why people go back to him or they go to Pryor or they go to someone like that where they're like, or they go to Carlin, which is not to negate that uh, your response to Carlin. I'm not throwing you in there, too, because I know you, uh, you definitely research your stuff. Well, I would... like that's why they do it. Well, I would say, you know, and I think, you know, for me, the difference is, is that I didn't inherit Carlin. Right. So it's like, yeah. it's, again, going back to the religious reference, it's always a lot more impressive or you feel like somebody more sincerely believes a religion or a philosophy when it was not taught to them. They just came upon it and it spoke to them personally. Uh, and as you know, I mean, I will admit I was completely ignorant of Carlin until maybe two or three years ago. I, and I think that's generous, probably like two years ago. It's only been over like the last couple of years that I've really come to um, get to know his comedy and enjoy it. So, um, and it's just new for me. Maybe it will fade, but for right now, it's like, it's definitely speaking um, to my heart or speaking to my soul. I, I wish there was more of it. Um, I know. He did it forever, man. He did it till he died. He, he, was, he was on that stage, man. For sure. Um, so in terms of the satire piece, so one thing I, I guess I do agree with you is that I, I believe that we now formally have two Americas. Mm-hmm. And both of them have so many things now that they see as sacrosanct. Um, and it makes it very difficult to navigate anything. Um, but particularly comedy. For example, we brought it up bef- uh, the show before, but I really do like Last Man Standing at times. Yes, um, what's his name? Um, Tim, T- what's his name? Tim. Tim Allen. Thank you. Tim Allen, um, his character says some pretty revolting things at times in the show. But when you look at the entirety of the show and the writing and what happens in the show, it's still a well-done show, you know? Um, And I feel like there's a lot of people here in Hollywood or possibly New York, because I would say that's the other big entertainment hub and where a lot of critics live that have panned the show because of a, a political stance. And I think that that's unfortunate. On the other side, um, I also think that people who tend to be liberal not only get criticized by conservatives right off the bat, but then they get cons- um, they get criticized by other liberals. But so what I'm trying to say is that 
I feel like when you have liberal-leaning comedy on the other side, instead of conservative-leaning comedy, um, you're doubly criticized because you're held to, like, not only do you have the conservative people who automatically don't like you because you're liberal, but then you have liberals who are critiquing you because you're not liberal enough. And he creates this very small band for doing uh, distrib- massively distributed comedy. Um, and yeah, I, I agree with you that it kind of does water it down or it just, you as a comedian, you have to accept that basically you're living on the edge um, and that at any moment to be a good comedian, you're going to have to be willing to crash and burn or to get basically um, crucified you know, on the uh, on the altar of uh, pissing somebody off or offending somebody. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't necessarily agree with it. I think comics should be comics, and they should be allowed to be comics, which means they're going to have to take risks. I mean, it's getting harder and harder to make people laugh. So I think they, in order to be cutting edge, they have to... Uh, go against the grain and what annoys me about liberal comics is that there's so much to make fun of liberals for and they just can't go there they have to get that college money and a lot of them are being told that they're they're given these uh these long lists of topics they're not allowed to touch every time they go to a campus now a lot of them are just like the ones that can afford not to do the college tours just don't want to do it it's not worth their time so I'll give Patton a lot of credit where I feel like his whole his whole bit, his whole um his whole set last night was basically making fun of uh kind of organic foods. Like that was seventy percent of his set. Actually the the biggest laugh I had that night was he said something along the lines of he was talking about when you go to the grocery store and you're reading the back of these cereal boxes. Ben Oswald has a lot of jokes about grocery stores. Uh, he does. <laughs> but <Not> what you know. <laughs> so he's talking about when you actually do read the back of these like uh, healthy cereals and stuff, how it's always the same story of how these two people met in 1973 at a Grateful Dead concert and decided they were going to change the world through food. And I was rolling, dude. <laughs> I was <on> the floor. <laughs> <laughs> and so I feel like he's he's been able to get away with but it is one of those things where it's like you got to be in there and people got to know really know where you stand because I feel like he takes such a liberal stance on things like Twitter that like he's given the pass to attack liberaldom liberaldom because he's in there you know yeah very few people I would say have positioned themselves as far in there as he has, where they'll be able to get away with it. I mean, I don't, there's even a lot of black comedians who don't get, I mean, look at, um, well, another thing we can talk about, but look at Kanye. Uh, granted, Kanye had like a decade of like continually, continuously saying things that were highly questionable. Um, but now he, that dude is like persona non grata and he's black. Um, but it's like, yeah, I mean, two things, you know, he supported Trump. And the other thing is he's, what do you say? Slavery was a choice or something like that. <laughs> um, 
you know, it can it can easily be taken away from you as we've seen for sure. Yeah, but you don't have to go crazy. Like, you don't have to go full Kanye in order to get your point across. <laughs> I mean, like making fun of things that everybody sees and understands. And uh, slavery being a choice is definitely not in that category. Did you see his um, Jimmy Kimmel appearance this last week? I, I certainly did. <laughs> Thoughts? <laughs> nope. Can we go to commercial? <laughs> can, can we have a commercial break? I'll tell you my thoughts on Twitter. They definitely uh, applied those commercials really strategically. <laughs> oh, yeah, they did. I don't even know what to make of that. They were like, uh, you know, we're either going to make Kanye look bad or make him look really bad. <laughs> like, let's go to commercial now. He's like, you want a second to not maybe not say anything else? <laughs> what, what you're thinking, just don't. I give Kanye this, though. And actually, I would say that his Kimmel appearance made me have a lot more sympathy with him. At first, he was really still trying to keep that wall up and act like someone we knew he wasn't. And I felt like through the course of the interview, he got more and more realistic about, yeah, like I have mental health issues. And, you know, I should feel, I shouldn't feel so afraid to talk about it in public, basically was what he said. He didn't say that verbatim. Um, but the fact that he can be honest about it, I think it allowed me as a, as a viewer to have more sympathy with him. And so he might, I don't know if he'll ever be, I mean, I don't think it's been a long time since anybody could say he's going to be college dropout Kanye again. I don't think that that's going to happen. Um, it's never coming. but I think it will get to a point where people aren't so, um, mad or disappointed in him. They'll have more empathy you know and just be like it was unfortunate that this is what happened you know but he still had his time his contribution to the culture you know what i'm saying and when i say the culture i mean like the general american culture and it wouldn't i wouldn't even really have a problem with it if he was like you know what i just support trump's policies but that's not his angle it's it's just i like trump as a person i want to be trump and that's the least popular thing about trump it just it people know there's no substance behind what he's doing. They feel like they're being trolled and that he's just exposing that he's a massive narcissist and he will do whatever no matter who it's at the detriment of. Yeah. Just like Trump. Yeah, I mean I mean it's very clear in that interview, he's basically saying, I'm choosing Trump because other people weren't choosing Trump and it made me essentially stand out and then I thought it wasn't fair that people went after me just because I think different. Um, And so it was like, in some ways, Kanye is one of these people who like, I feel like he picks a fight just so people care. Unfortunately, like that's what it feels like he's doing is like, he just, he'll just do out. He's acting out just to get attention essentially. Yeah. And I think we should have honestly saw that with the George W. Bush doesn't care about black people thing. It was hilarious yeah. to us at the time. <laughs> because a lot of people, you know, we didn't, a lot of people didn't like Bush for a lot of different reasons. And also, yeah. too, with the response to Katrina, it was just so poorly orchestrated um, that that was people had that underlying sentiment. Um, but still, like, I do think that 
Kanye had a and I it'd be really interesting to hear your feedback on this, but a social responsibility to kind of be a healer in that situation. And he's like, nah, I'm gonna stir up some shit. <laughs> <laughs> I think he thinks that he is a deeper thinker than he really is. He's oh, got yeah. illusions of grandeur about his own intellect. Absolutely. So he's like, yeah, for sure, right? He's like, you know what? This is cutting edge. There's no rappers that like Trump. <laughs> it's like, there's a reason for that, dude. <laughs> he, he's, he's like, he just has a bunch of bad ideas and nobody to check it. I mean, whenever people talk about Kanye, I'm like, reference J. Cole, False Prophets. That first verse will tell you everything you need to know. Wait, uh, all right. Will you, do you know it? Um, off the top of my head. Oh, so basically the gist of the verse is that Kanye is showing us who he really is. And he's like, maybe it's my fault for idolizing somebody based off of what I heard in songs. Maybe he's never really been that person. And he's like, you know what? I mean, this was my fault for following a false prophet. And maybe I should just look to myself and try to improve. And uh, obviously paraphrasing. Yeah. He said at the end of the verse, he's never going to top his old stuff. So he's just kind of listening to it nostalgically with a little bit of sadness, knowing that yeah, that wasn't just, ever even real. I found it. It says, ego in charge of every move. He's a star. And we can't look away to the days that he caught our hearts. He's falling apart, but we deny it. Justifying that half-ass shit he dropped, we always buy it. When he tell us he a genius, but it's clearly lately, it's clear lately, it's been hard for him to look into the mirror lately. There was a time when this dude was my hero, maybe. That's the reason why his fall from grace is hard to take, because I believed him when he said his shit was pure, and he's the type of dude it's very real, but all around him's fake. The women, the dick riders, you know, the yes men. Nobody with the balls to say something to contest him. So he grows out of control to the person that he was true. He truly was all along and starting to show. Damn, wonder what happened. Maybe it's my fault for idolizing dudes based off the words that he's rapping. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, but, I, I mean, again, all these guys are human. And um, I think, yes, a lot of times we look at comedians or we look at any kind of person peddling social commentary and think just because what they're saying is true, that means that person is 100% true. And I really do think that that's kind of a, an, ooh, sorry, a squeak toy. <laughs> uh, we, think that, <laughs> we, we think that that person... Um, Oh, I think that that's a kind of a young way to look at things, or like an uh, inexperienced and, I guess, for lack of a better word, naive way to look at things that all of us are somewhat guilty of. Um, and I, I do think you have a point, or I, you didn't say this, but I think you're kind of heading this direction in some of the things you've said over the course of the podcast, where like, Unfortunately, when we have social media as pervasive as it is, and there's not really a segmentation as much of social media anymore, like you have high school kids on Facebook now, or you had to have gone to college in the past. Um, you have old people on Snapchat, like um, grand grandparents on Snapchat. Um, it forces anybody who's plugged into that network of people to grow up really fast. Because um, even people who are adults are having a hard time with the fake news now, especially since 
like they're coming out with these things, the deep fakes and whatnot, where they're yeah. crafting these videos that are so realistic that it's hard to tell them from real news. It's, it's like I remember being a kid, and this was 15 years ago, and playing Madden on um, like PlayStation 2 or whatever or on on Xbox. And my parents would walk in the room. They're like, what game are you watching? I'm like, I'm just playing a video game. They're like, oh, snap. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the early 2000s. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I, you know, but in, in a lot of ways, I think that creates a lot of opportunity for people. And again, nobody can be perfect, but I think it creates a lot of opportunity for, for small time shepherds through kind of this media abyss. <laughs> media yeah. abyss is, is pretty dark, but through this medium, like meteor storm, right there's just so many things going on it's very nebulous there's a lot of people who can kind of be shepherds for smaller communities and in fact i think people want that i think that's why people were looking for things like Infowars, or before the internet a rush limbaugh or even now why people went to um more recently john stewart or go to uh stephen Colbert is because they're looking for someone to help put a lens on all this various news and help them decide how to feel about it. Cause it's just too much, especially for somebody who has limited experience, limited cultural references to understand the context. It's just too much information. Yeah. And that's another reason why just to return back to the topic that satire is losing its bite is because it used to be comedy inherently has to be based in some type of truth or irony it ha- or, or it goes into the realm of the absurd and it's funny because it's just so absurd but most comedy has to be based in a little bit of truth in order for people to laugh i think and uh the political satire is not based in truth anymore it's just based in the prescribed beliefs by your certain affiliation it's like, well, I, you think all of these things, isn't this the thing that we're going to laugh at today? And then they all like, like cattle just follow each other on the same topics. You could probably put all these late night hosts on a screen together and they'd be saying the same jokes about the same topics every day. You know, that's a good point. And, I, and I, it's interesting when we talk about like a post-truth era and what that means, um, you know, one of the things that Pat Oswald was saying in his set was about how people were like, oh, you must be so happy that Trump's president. And he's like, or you comedians, you guys must be so happy. And he's like, dude, I'm just tired. It's like, I don't get a break between jokes. As soon as he'll do something one day and I'm starting to write a joke about it. And then he does something totally worse and I have to try and write another joke while I'm in the middle of writing one joke. Um, that was a great bit. And... uh you know, you said that every good joke has to have a little bit of truth in it. And it's kind of like they say every good lie has to have a little bit of truth in it. But yeah, we're now in a point where like our president will say bald face lies that have absolutely no basis in reality. Like the fact that um, part of the reason that the California wildfires were so bad was because of um, environmentalist laws in, in California. And, be, and California was out of water because of environmentalist laws. And then the uh, 
water and fire authority, uh, you know, like, uh, not fire control, but like firefighting authority here in California is like, no, we have water. What are you talking about? <laughs> and um, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it is kind of a dilemma where it's, there's so many, the falsehoods are so blatant that it's hard to craft it's hard to craft great comedy because the the reality is already so absurd, you know? And yeah, so it's, that's a good point too, actually really good point. So, yeah, I mean, he can't stay in, in office forever. And honestly, I'm not even that worried about Trump. I think that's one thing that people, nobody's really talked about is they try to pin it on Trump. Like, Oh, if Trump wasn't president, this wouldn't be the reality. But it, Trump is is merely a reflection of what we allow him to be. <laughs> yeah. And so it says and a lot more about. Yeah. Yeah. It it says a lot more about about what we are permitting in our society, or you know, um, I've been really doing a deep dive into David Foster Wallace and I was wondering how I was going to introduce this, but perfect timing, <laughs> um, you know, and kind of his critique of postmodernism and how basically in the 1990s um, you had all of these shows that were all postmodern in terms of breaking down, like finding irony and deconstructing ideas. And so Seinfeld's television show, that was the whole thing was about breaking down ideas and and uh, it was a show about nothing right and it was really a nihilist show at the end of the day and in some ways I think part of what's going on with Trump is it's partially at the fault of left people who lean on the left to a certain extent uh, because I think that by saying nothing is sacred there's people who will take that and run in a completely different re- direction than you would if you took that, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> I've always said, like, and this is getting into a whole other topic, but I'll just introduce it and maybe we'll revisit it later. But I've always said that I felt like religion was a necessary evolution of hum- humanity, right? That I'm not sure that it's still something we need um, with all the information we have at our disposal now, but I feel like in some ways there's, there was a group of people or there, was, there wasn't just enough knowledge there yet to be able to organize people for their own best interests, and religion had to exist in order to start creating civilization and for people to look beyond themselves, and I think that some of this deconstructionist thought uh, of the postmodern era um, unveiled that there's still a lot of people that need belief more than knowledge in order to do the right thing. Oh, man. Yeah, that, I would not deny that for a second. We saw that with D.L. Hughley. <laughs> <laughs> Can you break? Well, what do you mean by that with the Dio Hughley case? Um, because he needs to believe what he's saying more so than he wants to have anybody refute that with evidence. 
Yeah. I mean, what he was saying was absurd. And that, there's, and that just permeates every aspect of our culture now, is people need to believe a thing more so than they need to, more so than they want to know the truth. And it's just very few people that do want to know the truth. And it's so inconvenient to be that person right now. It's kind of a burden. Well, and so I was watching a YouTube video that was kind of talking about what comedy fell under the mantle of postmodernism and then what comedy was more in line with what David Foster Wallace thought um, should be the ideal type of comedy. And for those who haven't read uh, David Foster Wallace, he's considered like one of the most important authors of the last 20 or 30 years. Um, he wrote a book called Infinite Jest, which was a big deal. Um, they came out with a movie about him with um, the guy from uh, The Social Network and then um, dude from Forgetting Sarah Marshall and um, How I Met Your Mother. Um, I know you know his name off the top of your head. Jason Siegel. Yes, sir. And he played David Foster Wallace. Um, and basically, uh, very prolific writer, well-educated, yada, yada, yada. But a lot of his writing centered around television and how it's affecting kind of the human psyche, like the, uh, the psyche of the masses. And I think by extension, you can say that, you know, social media and streaming video is just another extension of that uh, original innovation. And so the shows that they put in the camp of like postmodernism were like Seinfeld, um, Family Guy, uh, and then the ones that this per this particular YouTube poster put in terms of being more of what David Foster Wallace would say is what media should be like was um, Parks and Rec, Community, and The Office. And unfortunately, because I hate the camera work of those shows, I haven't seen enough of them to know, <laughs> like, to make a whole lot of comment on, you know, their quality or, or anything about them. Um, but I know that you're somebody who's seen them. And would you say that you see a stark difference between shows like uh, Community in the Office and Seinfeld and Family Guy? Um, yeah, I would say there's definitely a difference where... Um... They, oh, Those by the way, I should are... also say, in terms of postmodern shows, like the Family Guy one, they also put Sunny, Sunny, uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which I know you like, and they also put Modern Family. All right, now go. My bad. Okay, so which side of which side is Always Sunny on? The postmodern deconstruct deconstructionist. Yeah, I think it's actually deeper than that. So, well, actually, they, I would say they, they definitely attack subject matter. I think the way he's grouping these together is that he doesn't like the multi-cam type of uh, type of, of sitcom platform where everything is very well orchestrated and they're going to tell you when the punchline is and then they're going to give you a laugh track so you know when to laugh. And shows like uh, The Office and uh, It's Always Sunny, they've gotten no, 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 no. away with the so, so Always Sunny is put on a different side from The Office. The okay. Office... The office is considered more so basically like always sunny is seen as very cynical and full of irony oh, yeah, and yeah. deconstructionist where um, the office is seen as having some underlying universal values that it tries to show 
um, through the story. Yeah, so I've never seen The Office, really. I don't think I've seen an episode of it, so I, I could comment on that. But I could tell you that It's Always Sunny does do that a lot, where if they do have any message at all, I'd say they're – I'd say they, their appearance of not having a message is a message within itself. They're all extreme narcissistic characters that represent the worst human qualities that exist. And they shift from who is the worst and who is the best out of the group constantly. And most of the time they never win because if they did win, it would be bad because what they're trying to do is usually bad. Every now and then there's a political angle and they don't make a political statement themselves on the show most of the time. They show how convoluted and difficult it is for dumb people to figure out a complex issue. And I think that in and of itself, like the one about the gun debate where uh, two of the characters are super pro-gun and two of the characters are super anti-gun. And it turns out that Frank is just is uh, working with the gun lobby trying to get people terrified so they'll buy more guns because he bought uh, stock in this gun store. And it, and they're constantly trying to prove each other wrong, and they get nowhere at the end of it. Like, they don't learn anything. That's the lesson. So yeah, and so David Foster Wallace is basically coming out and saying that in order to create more credibility with people that a lot of these television shows were becoming very self-critical or self-deprecating or would just be, they would, they would um, boldly or like openly be about nothing. And that way you cannot criticize the TV show because it's already, it's already said, well, we're just a TV show. And what he's saying that the new, the next wave of kind of rebels in such an environment where nobody ever stands behind what they're saying or never says anything considered too campy because, um, because it would be perceived as self-righteous or it could be so easily torn down. The next group of rebels will, rebels will be people who say, no, I have these values you know, despite the fact that there's this trend that nothing is nothing is valuable or nothing everything can be okay. deconstructed. And he was saying that like he saw the next phase in art being people who are willing to actually take um stances um on universal truths without saying well, but hey, you know, um, what do I know? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. If that makes I any think, sense. Yeah, that does make sense. And I think I think he's right about that, I, especially in the next generation to come. I think that people are going to reject uh, the postmodern stance pretty outright. So I think, yeah, we will start to see people taking a moral stance on certain issues and taking a creative stance, and I think... It's going to be interesting to see how that unfolds. And I mean, that might be what we are seeing, right? Is that in the past, we had 20, since the 70s, really. So from the early 70s till now, which is, that's like 50 years, isn't it? Almost, like 40-something years. We've had a, an increasing postmodernist trend. And maybe part of the reason why we feel like there's less room to navigate is because 
we are seeing people who are saying, I want to have my values reflected in the art. And if you're not doing that, I'm not going to pay you. (laughs) And um, that might be it. That is just a paradigm shift that we're unaccustomed to. I'm just trying to like look at the other side of the argument. Right. And that might be, I mean, today I was watching the news and I saw that the Parkland survivors, like the parents and some of the kids, they were going around, they went to Newtown uh, to do some sort of event. And it was a big art event, right? And they really got into this whole like mural painting and stuff like that in different parts of the country. And that's one thing I've definitely noticed about what we we are dubbing Generation Z right now um, is that these guys are so much more confident in believing things than I felt like we were as millennials. Um, And people like to bash younger people in general, right? And I feel like a lot of times Generation Z gets lumped in with millennials. I've actually been pretty impressed with Generation Z. Um, And obviously they're just starting out. But um, I think that these guys are are actually quite, like granted, I think there's some overzealousness on certain issues, um, that we've kind of talked about with aspects of the Me Too movement, not not as a whole, um, or even like the complete gun ban. Um, but what I will say is I feel like they're in some ways a lot more self-aware of their limited experience. And despite that, they still are pretty actively engaged in taking a stance. Um and I don't know. I see it. I don't know if I, I I'm, I'm very hesitant to, and maybe this is the postmodernist in me to call anything good or bad, to put a value judgment on it, but it's definitely different. And yeah. I don't see it as like a, a difference that I don't respect, you know? Yeah. It's going to be interesting as we, it's going to be interesting to see the relationship as we take over um, as we start to rise in prominence as far as millennials and then uh, Gen Z right behind us, it's going to be interesting to see how we work together. For sure. Well, uh, we should probably wrap up because I got to get flying to Portland here. I'm sure you got to get ready for work. So you want to go ahead with your evil genius of the week and, um, and your leader of the free world? Um, well, I, let's see. Well, I, I think it's too convoluted to have either, so I'm just going to tell, tell you two weird situations. <laughs> okay. And we'll be very postmodern about it, and we won't take a stance. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Amarosa, <laughs> <laughs> who for some reason is famous and worked in the White House, uh, she was fired a while back, and now she's got tapes. I, I think she's dropping a mixtape or something. And she uh, she was fired by Jim Kelly, and uh, nothing I've heard so far has even been remotely important. She's like releasing snippets, you know, when like a trash SoundCloud rapper puts out like a song snippet, and then the song is horrible. That's what she's doing with her book. If she's like, I got tapes, and then it's like a tape of her getting fired by General Kelly, and it's hilarious. So uh, I'm just glad she's out of there. You you can't be taping phone calls in the Situation Room. Like that, you can't do that. Um, Here's what Donald Trump tweeted a couple hours ago. 
wacky Amorosa, who got fired three times on The Apprentice, now got fired for the last time. She never made it, never will. She begged me for a job, tears in her eyes. I said, okay. People in the White House hated her. She was vicious, but not smart. I would rarely see her, but heard really bad things. Nasty to people and would constantly miss meetings and work. When General Kelly came on board, he told me she was a loser and nothing but problems. I told him to try working it out, if possible, because she only said great things about me until she got fired, exclamation point. I don't know what any of that means, but that's what's happening in the news. And also, um, the whole Twitter exchange between uh, Saudi Arabia and Canada, are you familiar with what happened there? The whole Twitter exchange between uh, the Saudi government and uh, Canadian and uh, Canada. Okay, I I'm sorry, I don't know that one. You're gonna have to break that one down for me. Yeah, so the uh, Canadian ambassador was expelled from Riyadh after um, a controversial tweet, which was written in English and Arabic, and this was about ten days ago, where they. Uh, they said they were, the Canadians said they were gravely concerned about the uh, arrest of a women's rights activist, and they urged the Saudi government to immediately release them. So basically, Canada decided to take a political stance against the Saudis, and they were not very happy about it, booted the diplomat. And then they, they uh, a, one of those blue check Twitter accounts that is a state-sanctioned propaganda arm said, they tweeted this out literally. As the Arabic saying goes, he who interferes with what doesn't concern him finds what he does not please or what does not please him. And then hashtag Saudi Arabia, hashtag Canada. And there is a picture in black and white of an Air Canada jet flying directly towards the CN Tower. And there's emphasis on the plane. The plane is the only thing in color in the photo. So people said that's very 9-11-y. And, of course, they walked it back. But if you're Saudi Arabia, you can't tweet things like that and expect people to not to be reminded of 9-11 and take it as a direct threat. Mm-hmm. So Trudeau's walked himself into a, a really unfavorable situation with the Saudis. And it's weird that they decided to take a stance now. Just odd. So I can't – I just am waiting to see how this unfolds. So, um, evil genius, I got an evil dumbass and an evil genius. Evil dumbass is, uh, Erdogan in Turkey, um, which I don't think his reign there will be that much longer. For those who don't know a whole lot about Turkey, about every 10 years, basically there's a military coup because the previous president steps beyond his constitutional, um, authority uh and erdogan recently about three or four years ago um made it removed term limits on himself um so it's about that time for turkey to have a revolution um and over the last week um they've lost about half of the value in their currency they're going through a, a period of hyperinflation and trump has now started this trend of uh tweeting um to get information out um and so one of the pieces of information that uh, the Turkish government put out to their people was uh, 
to buy more of the Turkish currency to try and buoy it up, and they're not willing to raise rates in order to stop the hyperinflation. Um, so he's he's dumb. <laughs> 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 End of it. And this is all because the U.S. put sanctions on Turkey because they imprisoned some um, priest or some uh, pastor. And I guess he's a Protestant pastor. Um, and they're charging him with charges of terrorism um, as Turkey's become increasingly more uh, Islamist. Um, yeah, so it's just really interesting. I, I think Erdogan, in a lot of ways, he's setting up his own downfall right now. Um, another one where it's in the middle in terms of either being an evil genius or also might be setting up his downfall, Elon Musk tweeting out that he was going to take his company private or trying to find ways to do it, um, which created um, a lot of buying in the market of Tesla stock and now is being uh, sued for fraud um, because he's you know trying to manipulate the markets. Um, it could be great. Um, it could also end up badly. It all depends on how he, how he gets prof, uh, prosecuted and if he loses um, his case. Um, but in general, I think it's impressive that he's been able to keep Tesla moving for as long as he has uh, without making a profit. Uh, in that way, I would say he, he's been genius-like. Uh, in terms of leaders of the free world, my leaders of the free world this week is actually the American people. Um, and why I say that is, you know, we had the Unite the Right rally that was supposed to happen, I believe, on Saturday. It's either Saturday or Sunday. Um, and only two dozen white supremacists showed up at the nation's capital. Um, and I think we want to play that. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, and it's just like uh, there was way more anti-hate um, protesters um, at the Capitol. And, you know, the guy who created, I believe it was Richard Spencer, right, who was the guy who organized this. And he said, well, there was one of them. He was one of them. I know that a spokesman came out and said, well, there was logistical issues and yada, yada, yada. But at the end of the day, considering how many people were at the original Unite the Right rally, and even they were expecting maybe a couple hundred, that's still down from what they had before. Um, And I think what we're seeing is that people aren't seeing the value this my interpretation is that people aren't seeing the value in in the white supremacy stuff. And I think there's a lot of different people who are actually reaching out to other Americans that have these leanings and creating conversations and stepping them down. Um, I think right before the rally, there's the Preston, uh, I can't remember his last name, um, but he's this guy, African-American guy who's going around and um, making friends with Klansmen uh, and, and then getting them to give up um, their affiliation with the Klan. And I think there's a lot of Americans who are doing that in a lot less public ways. And uh, I think it's a great thing. I think that, I, you know, I've had some people who came up to me um, over the last 24 to 48 hours and they're like, this unite the right thing. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, honestly, I see it as a big win for this country. You didn't hear about anybody dying this last one. There was way less people there. Um, it, to me, it was a really good sign of how it turned out. Um, and it made me a lot more proud. And even, I mean, granted, Trump had a long time to learn from his last mistake. And I don't necessarily think it's 
sincere, but he came out and condemned white supremacy before the event even happened. So I think that um, the events of the first Unite the Right rally really did create some um, conversations um, that did not go in the favor of the white supremacists and did not go the direction they were hoping it was going to go. It went against them. And so to me, I'm uh, a little bit proud of the country this week. So That's good. It's good to find the positive things because, I mean, we should be constantly focused on on keeping our eye on what's happening. We can't push the negative things to the back, but it's uh, it's good to highlight the good things, too, so people uh, realize that, you know, things could end up being okay. All right. Well, that's episode six. I'm going to get on this plane to Portland. You have a good week, Chow Bay, and then uh, we'll talk soon about our episode for the next week and the rest of you guys uh, have an amazing third week of August. Yes, indeed. Stay safe. Enjoy your flight. All right, later.